What do you believe? What do you believe? What's up, guys? Kent Lap here with the Kent Lap Podcast. Welcome. We basically have long form, in person conversations that explore and inform. Today, I'm excited to give you our guest, Mr. Brian Adams. Brian Adams is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital in Nashville, Tennessee. They do syndication deals for commercial real estate. We talk a lot about it on the podcast, so I don't need to spoil it for you now. We also talk about the stock market, inflation, the future of office space in America post-COVID, how that some of these tech companies have been talking up the whole thing of working from home and buying a crap ton of office space on the down low while prices are down due to the pandemic. And it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. So Brian Adams up in a second. First, if you have not already, please check us out on YouTube and subscribe there. Just check out the Can't Let Podcast on YouTube and hit that subscribe button. That's a good way to stay in touch. All of our conversations are in video form, clips as well on YouTube. And you can check out our website, cantlap.com. Maybe go ahead and sign up via email there to stay in touch with us. And we're also on all the social medias. So let's talk there. That's it. So without any further ado, I give you my conversation with Brian Adams, and I hope you enjoy. Brian Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This is quite the treat. In person. I know, right? Coffee, cigars. Exactly. Friday afternoon. Man, absolutely. Three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And you just way to end the week. Absolutely it is. And you said that you closed a big deal. Was that today or was that this week? Yeah, we formally excuse me. We formally acquired a property today as of noon, maybe local. Okay. So suburban Detroit. It's kind of in the Birmingham area, if you know where that is at all. But um, good affluent area, 100% occupied, smaller deal, so probably $10, $11 million acquisition. Okay. But it's 12% cash on cash yield, which is just really hard to find these days. Yeah. And so six, not I don't want to use a bunch of jargon off the bat, but... It's okay. You can get technical. Six point People can Google it. So it's... Over six years, a weighted average lease term, <clears throat> which basically means a ton of stability. It's going to be really steady, Eddie. Year one is 14% cash on cash. And then it kind of dials back a little bit because of some lease turnover. Mm. And this is crazy. I've been doing this 11 years, raising capital, doing commercial real estate. We launched this one at 11 o'clock on President's Day, so federal holiday. <clears throat> and in Nashville, it was a snow day. It was kind of bad weather. I remember. Can you confirm what you mean by launch? Uh, we uh, sent it out to our investor network to solicit uh, investment. And so we sent it out to 400 people probably initially. And it was, uh, you know, in retrospect, a holiday and bad weather, kind of suboptimal. And we've been working on our marketing, our content creation, and really trying to go deeper with our current investors. So we weren't, we didn't know what was going to happen. It'd been a while since we had raised on a deal. We raised three and a half million dollars in under twelve hours. Wow, two x oversubscribed. Oh wow, unbelievable. Yeah, and, and, I mean, in in 
commercial real estate is relative. Some people that's not a big number. Other people's it's a huge number. For us, that's significant. Okay. But just the the appetite level for yield, unlike anything I've ever experienced. Mm. So on this particular deal, just in general, people oh, are looking okay. for cash flow. They want passive income. I think they're worried about where the market is right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're afraid about inflation. They don't really know what's going to be happening with this new stimulus bill. And so you've seen just this huge appetite for real assets coupled with some kind of income orientation with it. Um, and obviously the tax advantages that come with direct real estate ownership, but mm-hmm. just the appetite level is through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just not enough product. Everything's been bought up. So, Can you just pull that mic a little bit closer to you? Sorry. And by the way, just pull, you know, no, pull the mic towards you. You can stay comfortable. That uh, thing just moves around. Perfect. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. You go. Good. All right. So your three or 400, are you doing, are you doing syndication? Is that basically what it is? That's exactly what we're doing. Okay. So you're going to... Purely deal by deal. Okay. So we create an LLC. The only thing in that LLC is that one particular property. No cross collateralization on debt or equity with anything else. Everyone's common equity, so everyone is treated the same. Okay. And there's probably 25 to 50 people per, or entities per investment mm-hmm. is probably average for us. And the 80-20 rule definitely applies. So usually, you know, 80% of the equity is from 20% of the number of investors. Sure. And vice yep. versa. Yep. But we only work with taxable investors. So what I mean by that is individuals, families, or private wealth management firms that work with those type of folks. We don't have any institutional investors in our deals. Okay. Because you don't want them or because you haven't gone after them yet or because I don't want them. Okay. <laughs> because I have the privilege of not needing them. Okay. And I've done that before and it's not a very fun way to do business. Mm. And I'm at a place where I, I need investors, but I don't need to work with jerks. Yes. Um, and you find more jerks per capita in the <laughs> institutional world than you do in common American streets. Um, <laughs> it's just hard, you know, and, and I have this conversation with emerging managers or people that want to get into this business, this sponsor business. And a lot of them think if I could just get that one investor to unlock yes. all these doors, the golden chalice, if I could just get this insurance company, this pension plan, this endowment, this big family office. And, you know, the reality is it never works that way. And if if somebody's going to be 95% of your equity, rightfully so, they're going to want huge amount of control, yeah. huge amount of oversight, huge amount of economics. And, you know, that might work for some groups, but it's just a hard way to do business in my opinion. And yeah, these people because I know them, they're all really smart. They have a, they're well capitalized and they have really good third-party vendors they work with. So it's just going to be a slog. Yeah. Um, and I, my speed and the way that I built the company is to cater towards individuals and families. Mm. And that's who I like to work with. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by, yeah, you know. Makes total sense. So is this office space? What is this in Detroit? And by the way, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised about the Detroit thing. I don't know a lot about, um, and you can use this little guy yeah, here perfect. to keep that lit, but you just press right here. Um, 
My assumption is that Detroit is maybe not the most up and coming city in America anymore. So I'm kind of surprised you're investing there. Yeah. So we're in to give context. We probably have two and a half million square feet under management. Call it 400 million of gross asset value properties. And they're all, for the most part, secondary markets. So think of places like Nashville, although we can't afford to buy anything here anymore. Richmond, Virginia, Kansas City, Kansas, Cincinnati, those type of markets. And a place like Detroit is exactly where we like to be because the thought process from a lot of investors based on the coast is it's the Rust Belt. There's nothing there. It's a flyover state which is great for us, right? We like mm-hmm. not sexy. Mm-hmm. And Detroit, the population is actually, the loss is plateaued and is starting to gain again. Oh, it is? And part of our investment thesis is that this maturing millennial generation, I don't know how old you are, I'm 38. 36. So this maturing millennial generation, you don't qualify, I barely do. Um, or you qualify, um, and I'm barely on the on the edge of it. Um, the narrative on, on a lot of Wall Street kind of investment folks is you and I are going to live in Brooklyn, wear skinny jeans, eat avocado toast, never have a family, never have kids. Yep. And that's going to be our life. We're going to rent forever. And the reality is because of the Great Recession, that family formation phase got pushed back three to five years for a lot of people for economic reasons. But they are starting to get married, have children and make decisions about where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, Mm -hmm. access to single-family homes, and access to education for their children. Mm -hmm. And so they're boomeranging back to what I call Big Ten, Big 12, SEC country. Mm -hmm. And so places like Detroit, really affordable, really high quality of life because they have the infrastructure of a population that's two or three X what it is today. Was it really two or three X at one point? At one point, or it was just the, built for that and it never got there. No, I mean, at one point, I think it was the seventh largest city in America. Man, I can't imagine that. Same with like, Pittsburgh. Wow. This place is just used to have incredible volume of, of people. Good lesson for Nashville and a lot of cities that are experiencing growth right now. Yeah. That it's kind of like the S&P. I think the S&P has like an average turnover of 20% a year. So you think, oh, these these cities or these names are stalwarts, but it's always changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Detroit is coming back, and it still has really good. I mean, the downtown is is still working to to come back, but there's still these pockets of affluence in these suburban neighborhoods that never really went away. Mm. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we like it. We that's the investment thesis in terms of the millennial migration from a city level, but then we kind of break it down into these submarkets, these pocket neighborhoods, and the Southfield, Michigan, which is where Birmingham, Detroit is, is really strong from a metric standpoint. Mm. And one of the reasons I love being a fundless sponsor, I'm not beholden to a fund document or a PPM that says. I can only go to these certain geographic areas. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to go where there's opportunity, right? And yep. I found something like this. The numbers are great. We like the area. Smaller deal, which we've had to kind of push towards smaller deals because there's been so much competition. 
it just checked all the boxes and we're pretty excited about it. Yeah. So, and by fundless sponsor, you just mean that you don't have an institutional investor, correct? Is that what that means? It means I don't have an institutional investor. It means I don't have discretionary capital. So it, do, it means that I don't have a pool of capital that I can call on that's legally obligated to fund when I find a deal. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Got it. So I've got, to, I raise deal by deal, which means I'm I going see. at risk. I'm putting my own money in, obviously. The mm-hmm. management team is. But people aren't, people haven't legally signed saying, hey, I'm going to commit a million dollars to you. You can call it whenever you want. Mm-hmm. I don't have that optionality. Got it. Yep. But then on the flip side of that, you have all of the control about which deal you want to go after. And then it's just a matter of can you find the investors or not. Correct. And didn't have a hard time finding those investors. Yeah. And I think there's a misconception that you'll raise on a good deal. And I have a whole I have a whole presentation about that misconception. But this one just checked all the boxes. And it's, you know, the way that I pitch and the way that I market and the way that I present to my investors is from an empathetic standpoint. So instead of me finding a really good deal and saying, you need to do this because I'm smart and this is a good deal, I listen to what my LPs, my limited partners, my investors, what they want, and I just try to give it to them. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit of a different approach than you see in our industry in a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But I knew going in, anything north of a 10% yield, anything that had a weight average lease term of over five years, Anything that was in a good submarket, so the vacancy rate was below 10% for the product type, um, and had non-traditional office use. So this is mostly medical. Um, it has some kind of experiential retail, like a garage and that kind of thing. I knew it just checked all the boxes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the appetite was strong. So it's office space, but it's non-traditional office space. It's what's called, it's called flex. Mm. which is like the mullet of commercial real estate. It's kind yep. of business in the front and then party yep. in the back. So yep. it's <laughs> face you know, retail facing or maybe office facing, single story, the kind of product type that you see around an airport oftentimes. Sure, yeah. Like here in Nashville. Yep. Um, you've got kind of dock bays or distribution industrial usage in the back mm-hmm. with the ability to load if you need to. Mm-hmm. And it's a great product type right now because... Um, there's no common areas. There's no hallways. There's no shared bathrooms. All ingress egress is through the the one specific um, uh, tenant uh, space. So there's no worries about kind of COVID issues there. I see. People can control the access that they want to control. Yeah. And the really beautiful thing is is most of this product type is triple net, which means that all of the expenses are borne by the tenants. Yep. So from an asset management perspective, it's just much easier there, yes. um, which allows us to you know have more flexibility with dis- distributions. Yep. I don't have a ton of experience with triple net. I have more experience with uh, residential. And then a few years ago, bought um, a property that had commercial up front and residential in the back. And that was my kind of segue into a little bit more of the triple net stuff but the residential in the back with my experience there it gave me some confidence level to buy the property and it was my best property that i've ever had and but the triple net is actually pretty sweet when the tenants are paying insurance taxes and maintenance yes it makes <laughs> you can know, find a good deal it makes your underwriting a lot easier <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of a fire this is multi-tenant so it's not a fire and forget i mean we, we have some asset management to do but um yeah if you can find it it's great does your so then your Excelsior Capital, right? 
Excelsior Capital handles all the tenant relations. Investors yeah. don't have to touch it. They're Correct. just getting their disbursements from you whenever that is. Yeah, so the, the pitch is um, no pass-through liability to the investors. We take care of all the brain damage and the heartburn of the day-to-day. Now, we do third-party property management lease, so we will have a group in uh, Detroit who handles changing the light bulbs, um, the roof leaks, the the snow removal. Mm-hmm. They'll do all that. And then we'll third-party with... Um, like a JLL or a CBRE or a Cushman to do the leasing work. I see. So we pay them market and, you know, but on the asset level, so in terms of strategically positioning the building to perform the way we want to perform, capital expenditures, deferred maintenance, leasing decisions, um, refinancing, all that kind of stuff, we handle ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So theoretically, when an investor were to give us $100, um, the only liability they have is to fund that initial hundred dollars. And then ideally the investor experiences, they get their monthly distributions, they get their quarterly reports, they get their annual K ones. Um, and they're happy. So yeah. that's kind of the goal is the exit plan for the investors on a property like this to sell the property or to refinance at some point. What's the play here? The long, longer term play. Most of our investors, um, you know, there's they don't want the capital back unless it's going to be a big multiple on their investment. Okay. You know, IRR is not a really a meaningful metric for them for the most part um, because they're looking for that kind of passive income, that that coupon, that distribution dividend. They don't necessarily have a great place to put the money back to work to get a commensurate return. So unless it's going to be a really big hit, they would prefer to just keep it moving, okay. keep those monthly distribution checks coming. Okay. So these are long-term holds. Mm-hmm. And okay. that is definitely something that we try to be very transparent about is this is e-liquid. You should assume a 10-year hold. If you can't stomach that, this is probably not for you. This is not a, a buy it and then flip it type of deal. So yep. we put long-term debt on. We assume that we're going to hold it for a long time. And that cash on cash is representative of of an average of that 10-year hold. So every okay. quarter's, every month's going to be a little bit different depending on how that property is performing and what's happening on the asset level. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it ever turn out where you're looking at a 12% cash-on-cash return and it winds up just averaging out to 8% and investors get unhappy and then you just sell the deal and move on? Yeah, I mean... Does we, that we, happen or is that un- very yeah, common? Not every deal works the way that we underwrite. Um, but... And we've certainly exited deals early, but, you know, unless if, if the property is actually performing within a range of call it eight to 12 percent, so 200 to 400 basis points off of what you had modeled originally, you know, you don't want to sell from a position of weakness. And we haven't had to do that to date. Mm. Um, so luckily, we haven't had any issues along those lines, but um We've had some wins where we sold earlier than we would have anticipated. Okay. Um, and I've, you know, had some deals that have not gone as per pro forma for sure. Mm-hmm. I've not batted a thousand. I don't yeah. think anybody has. Um, but we've carved out this nice little niche where these ten million dollar acquisitions that are well occupied, stabilized, cash flowing, um, 
we've done a nice job there. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing that we need to guard against is style drift as a manager, going after bigger deals, going after different type of deals. Okay. That's where I've told my investors, that's when you should really make sure that I'm sticking to my knitting, mm. um, including my management team, right? Because I think if you raise like you raised on that deal, right? Your initial response as a manager is, well, go find me more product. Yeah. And you you want to be guarded against that because that's when you can really get out over your skis and get yes. into trouble. Yeah. Um, and there's an adage in real estate that it's the same amount of brand damage to do a $10 million deal as it is a $100 million deal, which is, which is true. But the economics are probably a lot better at that $10 million deal because it's a more inefficient space. Mm. But that's why you see managers go out and raise bigger funds, do bigger deals. They have initial success and then... That's where their returns revert to the mean. Okay, so the returns come down, but obviously the dollar amount goes up, <clears throat> and you're putting in the same amount of work anyway. Okay, interesting. Um, and so that property is you put out the request for funds on President's Day. We got all that snow in Nashville, and today at noon, you bought it. It's yours. Correct. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Cheers to that, my man. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> That's worthwhile. <laughs> I I always hate closing a deal on a Friday or, or penciling it in because it it's just hardly ever works. But this oh, one yeah? this one went smooth. Um, I think you already uh, answered or spoke to one of my questions. I was going to ask you is if you get into other types of real estate then as well, or do you really try to stick into commercial in that what ten to twenty thirty million dollar mark and secondary market? Is that sort of the niche that Excelsior is in? That's the pitch. So we we do commercial. For us, commercial means anything from office to industrial to that flex product that I talked about to not straight medical office building. So don't think of it as an on-campus or on-medical center property, but more of a medical arts. So a LASIK eye center, Mm. a dialysis clinic um, typically doesn't have an OR in it. That's a product type that we would do for sure. But we don't do any single family. We don't do any multifamily. Okay. We, we, we just don't have that expertise. Okay. So. Yeah. So you're you're going to stay in your wheelhouse and just stick with that. Yes. If you find deals that are worthwhile doing, great. And if not, you just keep looking and waiting. But you're not going to be looking outside that asset class. No. Okay. Um, and we found that that price point, 10 to $15 million is is inefficient. There aren't a lot of good buyers in that space. So, you know, there's typically um, a syndication of high net worth individuals or a broker that would try to put together those deals, but they don't have our track record. Mm-hmm. They're probably tough to work with. They'll probably retrade you, maybe okay. maybe cut you back on your fees. And so for us, we always act as a gentleman. We always transact as gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And that's what's allowed us to get some off-market looks. Still broker-driven, mm-hmm. but maybe limited distribution or we get a first look at it before it goes out live kind of thing. And you're only working with accredited investors. Correct. And if someone's listening that isn't an accredited investor and it, and by the end of this conversation, it sounds interesting. Where could they, is there like an email thing they could sign up and get, become one of those three or 400 people that gets, gets emailed next time or. Yeah. I appreciate that question. Um, you can go to the website, excelsiorgp.com and you can enter into the process there, or I'm really active on LinkedIn. That's how we connected. Okay. You can just reach out to me and we'll do a phone call and go from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, let's go back around. First of all, you mentioned Pittsburgh and Detroit, two pretty major hockey cities back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you're have you? I have seen somewhere that you are a little bit into hockey. Are you still, or have you followed this more in the past? Or? Yeah, I have a, um, I have a unhealthy emotional relationship with the Predators. I would say. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's probably a little bit too much. I grew up in upstate New York, so I played upstate, upstate New York. Where yeah. in upstate? Uh, northeast of Albany on the Vermont border. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true upstate. We were uh, Finger Lakes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Where? Uh, Watkins Glen. Yeah, where they Did had ever the race. Come, ever come down for a NASCAR race? <laughs> no, but I played <laughs> I played hockey and lacrosse growing up, and so I spent a lot of time in what I would call Western New York. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Only if you're from it upstate is. would you call that Western New York. If you're from, Exactly. If you're from like White Plains, everything's upstate New York. Yeah. But people don't realize <laughs> that to go from like where I live to Buffalo is... It's like oh, an eight-hour drive. That's super far, yeah, yeah I mean, for it's, sure. It's just yeah. a different world. So, yeah. But I grew up a Cuse fan, so we'd go to Cuse lacrosse games. Okay. And then um, I played in the um, in high school. You play like Empires for lacrosse, and we would play against like all those powerhouse Western New York teams. Okay. Um, out in that part of the world. So yeah, okay. my folks are still up there. Um, but I, I with the pandemic, I haven't been in over a year. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's um, Western New York, as you say, or Central New York. It's a great place. The Finger Lakes, gorgeous, beautiful. Geneva and the vineyards Geneva, up there are really pretty. The vineyards are great. The wineries Thousand are Islands. great. Thousand Islands, beautiful, man. Yeah. Um, but it's cold a lot of part of the year. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> this is what I like about Nashville is, you know, we had that week of snow and literally we just stayed home all week pretty much. I barely worked that week. It was kind of embarrassing. Only a couple of days I worked in. And uh, but it was great. I mean, we were playing in the snow, watching movies at night with the kids and everything. And then guess what? A week later, 60 degrees and gone. I know. And you know, if this was upstate New York, a week later, it'd still be there. And a week eight later, it'd still be there. And, and a month later, it'd still be there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you know, I try to tell people, it's a beautiful place, great place to grow up. Wouldn't trade for the world, but March and April are the cruelest months in that part of the world because it's tantalizingly close but i remember playing lacrosse games in like deep into april snow on the ground Mm -hmm. freezing brutal um and i mean i remember snow in may a couple times for sure i do too um and it's just you know hard when you're in your 20s or your 30s there's just not a lot going on up there, right? Yeah. I mean, Albany is about 45 minutes from my house. And that's where I went to high school, went to a private school there. And it's a great place to grow up, but if it wasn't the capital of New York, ain't a whole... And my family's been up there since the 17th century. It's like a long no time. No kidding. In the Hudson Valley area. Oh, wow. And um, it's just not... There's just nothing nothing going on there yeah it's quiet yep so so what are your thoughts on the preds you've been following them closely i was for a good while and then something about covid and sports man i kind of just i don't know i just kind of lost touch with i'd like watched one or two football games this year one of which was a super bowl just haven't been following sports with you COVID a bills fan no i was when i was a kid okay. i remember having bill socks and i had bills um 
onesie PJs, man. They were awesome. And those socks had, yeah. do you remember the little kid socks back in the day? They'd have like that little bit of rubber on the bottom. Yeah. I don't see that anymore. But, <laughs> but I had socks like that and they were all, they had bills on them. So I was a super hardcore Bills fan. But my dad was into the 49ers. So then I kind of shifted over to the 49ers and I like their colors better anyway. Well, <laughs> the, you know, your dad's a smart guy. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, grew up in upstate New York. I played, um, you know, competitive hockey in, in high school. And then I played lacrosse in college. Why not hockey? I was better at lacrosse. Oh, really? I wasn't a great okay. hockey player. I was okay. a bad skater. You know, in that part of the world, um, we had a pretty competitive uh, program in high school. And early on, you realize there are guys that you play with that are going to play like Ivy League or maybe AHL. Mm-hmm. And you realize, you didn't, you know, when you're a sophomore or junior, you're like, wow, I'm not anywhere near that good. Yeah. So I'm going to put that away and focus on something else. Yep. But I, I still am a huge fan and I love the NHL. And when I moved here, my father-in-law, who we were talking about on, before we went live, is from Manhattan. So he's a, he grew up playing and, and it was a big Rangers fan. So he's a day one season ticket holder for the Preds. Oh yeah? Okay. So cool. when I first moved here, um ninety nine, right? Mm, ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, right. It was right around, around yeah. when the Titans it was before the Titans it was when the Titans moved here, but they had already left Houston. So they had those weird years where they played in Memphis for a year and then they played at Vanderbilt for a year. Oh I didn't know that. And I think it was like the same year that they started playing at they called it a Delphia, whatever the old stadium was. Okay, but, but yeah, ninety eight ish was because okay. when they went on that run, it was like their twenty year anniversary. Okay, yeah, that's right. Yes, so it's just about twenty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, their twenty five is coming up. But anyways, um, I was in heaven when I moved here. We didn't have kids, obviously, and you know those like Tuesday night in October games that nobody goes to. I was drinking beer, having like a ball and my father-in-law has three daughters and I was the first one to get married. Oh, okay. So he was just so happy to like have a guy to go to oh, games with. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so he, he doesn't have any sons. No. Okay. And, um, he's a, he's an interesting guy. He's a, a trauma surgeon by trade, but he took a company public in the nineties. So, um, and he's a huge sports fan. So he does not mess around with his seats. He's got, you know, offense twice blue line, 35 seats up above the glass, just like killer, unbelievable seats. <laughs> nice. So yeah, I, I just became a huge Preds fan when I moved here and they had pretty good success. And then 2017, when they made that run, um, I went to, I think I went to all the playoff games. Dude, we went to so many games that year. That was I happened to have half season tickets that year and the year after and they don't extend into the playoffs. I went to a couple playoff games, but they were getting expensive yeah it was wild. so i checked out pretty quick but just watched every single game on tv man me and my my boys you know they were a little younger at the time but they were super into it man so yeah that got, was so fun it was so i will say fun. this for the sports fans out there those years when the preds was going for it if you were in that stadium or in that if you were there live in those games it was like an experience i'd say second to none i mean i've never been to a super bowl but that was dude that was that was pretty epic. I mean, I remember it was the Western Conference Finals, and it was the same weekend as CMA Fest. Yes, yes. And um, why am I blanking on this? 
the big music fest that's down in um, Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo. Yes. And it was wild. It was crazy. Like, I went downtown early, which is unimaginable with COVID. <laughs> but like, yeah. I went downtown early and I mean, there were probably 100,000 people downtown. Mm-hmm. Easy. And it was insane. And it was so much... It was the most fun I've had with my clothes on. Like yeah. that playoff yeah. run was incredible. It really was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It really was. But I haven't been following them so much this year. I've heard they're not doing so good. They're bad this year. Okay. And I love I love Poil. I love them. But it might just be time to I'm a New York fan, so like the minute things go bad, I just want to fire everybody. Yeah. Because that's how I grew up with like in the city. Or my dad being a Rangers and a and a Mets fan. But they're bad. I mean, we don't have any character. If you were to ask like a pretty big hockey fan, you know, what style do we play or how would you describe our our play? We're nondescript. Okay. We're we're mediocre. Yeah. Our goaltending is is poor. We don't have great leadership. I'm not and this is not going to come across well, but I'm not a huge fan of a European captain. Mm. I just think you need some. Not on Yossi, huh? I love Yossi. He's a beautiful man. He's talented. And he's the, yeah. like somebody who loved him very much, taught him to skate early. He's a beautiful yeah. skater. Yeah. But I feel like you need a guy that played in the Western Hockey League to get in that room and mm. scream at people. Okay. And so I don't I, disagree with that. I, you know, they just don't, I don't know, they just don't look like they're having fun playing. Uh-oh. I'm not a big fan of the coach. You're not. Um, so. It's still Laviolette. No, it's um, the guy that got fired by the Devils last year, Haynes. Hines. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He was a he was a USA hockey guy, so he knew Poyle from when Poyle was running uh, USA hockey at the Olympics. And again, they just and it's, it's part of it is this new realignment with COVID. Their division is brutal. We have to play the Lightning eight times. That sucks. You know, it's very competitive. But yeah, I think they should. I think they should throw in the towel dumpster dive and get some new talent yeah. frankly but <laughs> all right enough for the small talk my man here we go um on january the 20th of this year you tweeted this was a quote from charlie bellello u.s spac so special purpose acquisition companies mm. u.s spac ipo capital raise 2013 1 billion mm-hmm. 2014 2 billion 2015 4 billion 2016, three billion. By the way, in SPAC. So this is this is a group that gets money together and goes public without actually having a business that later buys a business, right? So is that generally is that fair for an SPAC? Or do you want to add something to that just so people have context? No, I'd say that's fair. I mean, it's really it's basically an alternative way to go public. That's not a traditional IPO. So the investment banks are not involved in the sale and the fundraising process. And you basically are, you're raising a blind pool of capital with the intention of within two years buying a company and they automatically become publicly traded via that. Yes. This is not something I was familiar with. Um, All right. So these SPACs raising the amount of money is what we're talking about here. In 2016, they raised $3 billion. 2017, they raised $11 billion. 2018 uh, raised 9 billion. 2019 they raised 13 billion. 2020 83 billion. And, and that's 2000, an updated number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 20. And 2021 uh 2021 here 2 weeks in 
they'd raised $15 billion in two weeks. What the heck? <laughs> what is going on? So, I mean, I'm not going to pretend, I'm not a Wall Street guy, but I think what you're seeing play out is kind of a New York versus San Francisco turf war, where the tech bros are pissed off that the investment banks get to make all these money on fees to take their companies public via the traditional route. Okay. And oftentimes what you see happen is the bulge bracket, think Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, et cetera. What they do is they, they convince management team to come in at a lower valuation when they're doing an IPO. And then they hook up their ultra high net worth clients and their buddies with the stock pre-sale, right? The IPO. And then there's a pop. You hear about that pop, right? Like, oh, XYZ company went IPO and it popped 10%, 20% day one. Mm -hmm. Well, those guys get the benefit of that pop. The investment banks do? The investment banks and the buddies that they hook up to get in early on those deals. Okay. And it pisses off the tech bros because the tech bros say, you should have just valued the company fairly and given me 20% more of my interest. Mm. So I think that's part of it. And also there's just so much damn liquidity in the system because the Fed has been running the printing press for the last 12 months that these companies allow for like super speed transactions without having a bunch of really smart research analysts have to dig in. Right. Because what you saw play out with WeWork, for instance, WeWork just kept raising more and more rounds of venture funding at bigger and bigger valuations until they got to SoftBank, which is the biggest gorilla on the block. And SoftBank was like, well, we don't have anywhere else to go with this. We have to take you public because we have to get liquidity. Well, research analysts in Wall Street, you can poo-poo them, but they're really smart people. And so once they open up the books, they realize like this company is dog shit. It mm -hmm. doesn't make any money. It's got way too much debt. They do all these things that don't have anything to do with their core business. Mm -hmm. And that's when the IPO died. Mm. Um, so I think some of these, you know, SPACs, these, these special purpose acquisition companies, I think they don't want to necessarily go through that rigor of having these guys look at everything. So it's it's de rigueur right now. I mean, it is like the sexiest thing on the market, and there's been a ton of activity the there. SPAC is. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to end terribly well. And like most things, I've got a, a, a real close friend who's a former hedge fund guy out of New York that lives here now. And he always says, if it is, if, if Wall Street has a product that is an abbreviation and uses a bunch of jargon terms that, you and I don't know, and we're smart. Like if you and I don't know what it is, it means that retail investors are getting ripped off. <laughs> and I think that's pretty accurate okay. for the most part, right? I mean, this is a complex, and I've done webinars, I've done interviews with people that like really know what they're doing and they've explained it to me and it's, it's complex. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on there. So I think this is a case of the Wall Street guys and the people sponsoring the deals are going to make a lot of money and some retail guys are going to get hurt. Retail okay. investors, if I had to guess. I mean, it's just so much. I mean, it's a lot. 2019, 13 billion, you know, and then 2020, 83 billion in the middle of a global pandemic. So do you think that's more money shifting from other places in the market into the SPAC or is it just additional liquidity raising it or a combination? I think it's all of the above. Okay. I mean, if you look at, and I posted this on LinkedIn yesterday, at some point this week, 
we're at an all-time high of zero revenue billion plus market cap companies today. So uh, yeah, I think so. I these are Twitter. these are billion plus market cap, which is a which is a these are large companies. Amazon's one of them. That they do not they do not they're not profitable. But Amazon isn't, aren't they? Hmm. They don't make profit. They make a lot of I revenue. I didn't know that about Amazon. Yeah, so, so I thought they were profitable. It's all revenue growth. Yeah, and they make a shitload of revenue growth. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, they're smart. They know what they're doing. But Bezos has said from day one, do not value this company based on profitability. We're going to grow. Mm-hmm. And that's been the venture model for the last 10 plus years is we'll worry about how to make money later. Let's just keep top line revenue growing. Yeah. How until, long do you think that's going to last? Until the music stops. Okay. I mean, because as a founder, if you have a good idea and you have capital being thrown at you, that to me seems like a dream scenario because as the founder, you can just focus on revenue and customers and the business. I mean, that's fantastic and not have to worry, you know, if you need more money, just go get it, you know, but, but for most of the businesses out there, they don't get to do that. You know, they have to make money or they go out of business. Correct. So do you think that with this focus on growth, is this sort of a, a, a specific thing that we've been seeing since, I don't know, when you would say 2000, 2010 until now, that's sort of this anomaly, that it's not going to be like this forever, that in the coming 10, 20 years, that sort of being able to get by with just growth is going to go away? I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, that, and if you look at a company like Berkshire Hathaway, um, they're, they're sitting on a record amount of cash, so is Apple, and the problem is, their investment thesis is such that they want to invest in profitable companies. And there's just not a lot of great places to, to allocate capital right now. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the issue is it's called the, the Tina effect. There is no alternative. So if you have cash, right. And if, and if the fed has been running the printing presses and people have been getting stimulus checks, um, if we're, we're basically on universal basic income and, if you're an investor and you look around, you think, okay, well, bonds, 10 years are turning me 1.5%. That sucks. Junk bonds are returning under 4%. That's not great. Real estate's expensive. If you want to participate in a REIT or a big fund, you know, you're looking at a 5% return maybe. Mm-hmm. And then you look at stocks, and you're like, damn, they're returning compounded 10 to 20% annually. Mm-hmm. Throw it in there. There's no other place to put that amount of liquidity to work. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But I also want to ask you about stocks. So here is, this is from, your Twitter's a gold mine, by the way. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good stuff on there. What What is your uh, Twitter handle? I think it's Brian C. Adams, right? Yeah. I'm not, I, I basically take my LinkedIn postings. Oh, and do you really? To oh, Twitter, okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't actually look through your LinkedIn postings, um, but I was just looking through your Twitter. So you're a lot more active on LinkedIn than Twitter. Yeah. But it looked you had some great stuff in in um by the way, this I have to ask this. How many people try to make like a clever comment or question about the Brian Adams thing? Like the singer? <laughs> Not a ton. Oh really? Um it does happen from time to time. Yeah. Do you ever listen to Brian Adams? Yeah. Favorite some song good stuff. Um probably all for one, one for all. Uh, that's the Robin good. Hood soundtrack. Yeah, I like that one. I like um, cuts like a knife. 
every yeah cuts like a knife everything i do i do it for you i like honestly like summer of 69 is probably one of my least favorite songs um still he's got great stuff anyhow so you had on your twitter this is a guy uh jim chanos i guess founder of kinikos associates we're seeing a level of misunderstanding about how markets work that is being brought on by a whole new generation of investors who have never seen a bear market it's yeah. a pretty bold statement. What what's he saying and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I mean if you if you think you're in your mid to late thirties like me, I was in law school during 08, so I was not a market participant. And I didn't really understand what was going on at the time. You can watch the big short and you but unless you're in the market, it's hard to yeah. know. And it's you know, and I'm list, I'm actually listening to Obama's autobiography right now where he goes through TARP and the bailout. And oh, cool. so it's super interesting. What are, what are you listening? What, what's it called? Um, his autobiography is called promise land. Mm-hmm. It's two parts. So this is part one. Oh, okay. And this is not a, I mean, you can have whatever politics you have, but his, his retelling of that period of time is fascinating considering what's happening today. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Um, it's long. I mean, he's not short. He's long winded. I mean, the whole thing, I think part one is 20 hours. Whoa. But it's, I mean, um, it's unabridged, obviously. Yeah. And he reads it. Obama does? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. He's got a great reading voice. Well, that's kind of, he does have a good voice. Um, And he's still not going to beat his wife's number on on book sales. But um, uh, yeah, so you've got this, this, this generation of people that, you know, after 08, I think what presidents have started to realize is recessions are a bad business. Like the normal cycle of every 10 years, there's some type of recession. Presidents have realized that they can make the Fed and Treasury do stuff to avoid natural recessionary cycles. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what happened in 08, you look at what happened with COVID. I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, but it is what it is. They basically said, Screw it. Turn the printing presses on. Debt doesn't matter. Like the ratio of debt to our GDP, nobody cares. Don't worry about it. People still buy treasuries. Let's just let's just pump liquidity in the market. We'll backstop these companies because that's what the Fed is doing, right? They're saying if you invest in the stock market, you're investing in the US federal government because we're backing up these companies and we're backing up these bonds. Mm-hmm. They own a lot of the the stock, right? So there's really, there's no downside. Like, why not? Mm -hmm. It's free money until it's not. Right. So we'll see how the carousel ends. So you think the, we have been able to stay away from these bear markets so long because they're just printing money. Presidents have, presidents have the Fed and, and presidents have the Fed in their bully pulpit and they know they can get fired if they don't do what they want. And it's, you know, it's easy money. Mm-hmm. And I go back to a family office perspective. Of, there's a saying in the European family office world that they do art, gold, and real estate. That's how they've been able to maintain their assets over multi-generation. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not investing in the stock market. I'm actually not right now, but I have certainly have in the past. But if you think about assets that have endured long term mm-hmm. and avoided these, you know, massive sell-offs 
or problems, you can probably have modern equivalents, but I like that asset allocation a lot. And yeah. I just have trouble with, I like to invest in things that are simple, that I understand. I'm not super smart. So if you were to tell me, okay, well, how does, um, you know, XYZ tech company make money? I'd be hard pressed to understand exactly what they do. Yeah. But if you ask me how my deal in Detroit makes money, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I pay X, I put debt on it, and then I get the upside. Yes. It's pretty well, simple. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lot less smart <laughs> than you are, and I feel the same way, which kind of leads to another thing that I wanted to ask you about is... Um, it's just this idea of like how active should the average person be in the stock market, you know? So, so let me get there. Cause right now I'm not, I'm not either for a few reasons, but the, this is another thing that I wanted to point out. You also had this on your Twitter, which is great. Jeremy Grantham, mm. who, who is not a nobody. I mean, this guy has some assets, at least in 2015, he was managing over 118 billion and who knows what it is now. And the dude's a legend. Yeah. Uh, boy, he also built a reputation on identifying, you know, bubbles. And he said the long bull market has finally matured. And he's talking about now, you know, he said the long bull market has finally matured into a fully fledged epic bubble featuring extreme overvaluation, explosive price increases, frenzied issuance and speculative investor behavior. This will be recorded as one of the great bubbles of financial history. My question to you is, do you agree with them? And if so, how do you think that should translate into like the actions at an everyday level for our listeners? Like if we think we are really at this bubble, we're in a bubble and it's about to pop, which he's not saying it's about to pop, I guess. But if we're in a bubble, would the advice then be to, to sell off and go into cash or real estate or to just be careful about what you're doing in the stock market? What, what would your advice be to, to kind of the everyday man based on that information? Yeah, and, and I'm not in a position to give you financial advice and I would say just this week, we saw a correction in the NASDAQ, right? So tech stocks are down about 10% in the week. That's pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you look at your asset allocation and your position in the market, if you, if you are not going to be able to sleep with a 20% downside, then don't play the game. Mm. Because that's I think this is going to be a really volatile period of time where... You know, these high-flying tech stocks that have that have ripped since last April, it might be time for a bit of a reckoning. Um, that being said, we're about to put another $2 trillion of, of money into the market. So yeah. it's weird. It, it's, it's like if you look at the Fed and what they said this week, it was like good news is bad news because they were saying, yeah, we're turning the corner with COVID and things are opening back up and the economy's coming back, which meant treasury yields went up, which is, which is a good thing. But the problem is when, when treasury yields go up, stocks in a relative basis look worse, right? Mm -hmm. Cause if, if treasuries were pricing, if, if you could buy a 10 year at 5% or 8%, you do that all day. It's a risk-free investment. And if stocks are not going to give you something that's, going to give you that pricing premium to the risk-free, then they don't look as attractive. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what Grantham is talking about is, you know, this isn't a game. 
it can be a game, but you need to be comfortable with it going to, you know, 20, 40% down. Yeah. Which, I mean, I was, I was in the market in Q1 last year and some of my positions were down 35% in April. And I remember what that felt like. I wanted to throw up. Yeah, I believe it. And so now I've, I've gone all cash or, and obviously I'm participating in my real estate deals, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm scared to go back into the market. And I don't know when the right time is. That's the biggest problem is I've talked to my financial advisor. I've talked to really smart people. I'm like, what's an entry point here? Because we're at all-time highs. It's trading at 28%, I think 28 times book value, which is pretty steep. There doesn't seem to be a lot of deals out there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to, you know, how to how to entry this. Do I just put a, a percentage a month and then just kind of work my way in? Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm nervous. So that's I this is what I wanted to ask you about is I have um I have a love-hate relationship with the stock market in that I have not been that interested over in it over a long period of time with some exceptions because I felt like the amount of time that it takes to follow the market and try to be wise with it is more time than I care to give it. And if I would take that time and focus it on my other and my own endeavors, that it would be better for me. And it's just, there's something about it that I think it's the, I think it's the thing of like having to follow the information closely. What I really love is looking at a deal like a property and running the numbers a bunch of different ways, being sure and leading up to one big decision. You make that decision and then you can just kind of move on, you know, and some months it's more, some months it's less. Sometimes there's maintenance, whatever. But you made the decision, you buy and hold. I love the buy and hold thing. Stock market seems to be, and I know there's buy and hold in the stock market too, but when it comes to things where you're having to follow it daily or weekly and keep after it, and if it's and there's people talking about it and it's new and sexy and you know you got to monitor all of that and make your decisions accordingly and kind of real time, those are things I tend not to get that interested in. So what I would love to ask you about is there is has been some exceptions to that, by the way, which I remember um, I remember in 2008 pacing outside on I, I just remember where I was at. I was at uh, my wife's family's house we were visiting and I was walking the road looking at stocks and one stock was way way low and I did decide to buy some it wasn't like hundreds of thousands of dollars that I'm dealing with but it was you know it was it was enough that if it went to zero it was going to hurt but but also if it went back up to where it was that was going to be really great and so over that period of time I was probably like the most interested in the few years before that taking some classes and kind of learning the market you know but then in the last number of years I've just not been that interested, but I have a lot of friends that are, and they're they're paying a lot of attention to it. I mean, shoot, they're making some, they're making very good money, you know. And so sometimes I wonder if I miss, if I'm basically shorting myself and my family on an obligation. You know what I mean? Like to be kind of a wise, prudent steward of, you know, your family's finances in today's day and age. Is part of that have to involve the stock market, or is it okay if that's just not your thing and you don't want to pay that kind of attention to it and not deal with that volatility? If you have your own things that are more, you know, buy and hold or more stable, and you can just kind of focus on that and kind of forget about all the noise over here. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question, and and the way I look at it, and again, I'm I'm 38, right? So I'm a I'm a product of my experiences. And I know some of these folks, and it, it just seems like Wall Street and the machine and the products that they put out, they're the smartest guys on the street. 
yet they seem to need a bailout every 10 years because they blow themselves up. Hmm. So do I want to participate in that industry? And the second thing is one of the reasons I love real estate is because it is illiquid. Because if in April and May, my investors had the opportunity, they probably would have cashed out at a 40% discount. Yeah. Because that's what the REIT market was, right? REITs are a synthetic representation of direct real estate investment. I think they're a bad, they're, they're a poor synthetic, but they are. Mm. And if you look at the REIT market for office, it was down about 40%. Was it really? Yeah. In April of last year? Yeah. And these are 40%. 40%. And these are stocks that represent best in class properties in Midtown Manhattan, downtown San Francisco, um, you know, class A buildings, great credit tenancy, kicking off a three to 4% yield historically. So if, if my investors had their druthers and they could look at the scoreboard, they probably would have cashed out. That would have been the wrong call. And part of the reason I like my business is because there's no, there's no daily scoreboard. And I tell my folks, you can look at stuff monthly. You can look at the P&Ls. We'll provide them, obviously. We provide quarterly commentary. But for these things, you really shouldn't reassess where you are more than on an annual basis, in my opinion. And, and part of the beauty of it being illiquid is I can't sell when you want me to. Right? That's I've, right. I've got a hold. Right. And you can talk about the future of office and maybe we will, but I've been able to still send out my distributions, been able to still send out my dividends. I don't think it's accurate to say that my portfolio is, is, is trading at a 40% discount today. Mm-hmm. I like that part of it. Mm-hmm. So you plan to get back in the market, back in the stock market at some point, carefully? I do. I'm sitting on a lot of cash right now. Um, I don't, I don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of real estate deals, right? I mean, there's just not a lot of product out there and I've got a huge allocation of real estate. So I need to be careful there. Mm -hmm. I need to maintain some liquidity so I can participate in the deals, Mm -hmm. but I'm like everyone else. I'm looking for a risk adjusted return, some kind of yield. You know, I think inflation is real. So I'm looking for income I'd love to diversify outside of real estate. Oil and gas just has been crushed. So I'm not sure energy is where I want to be. I just don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think I'll probably co- go back. I kind of want to see what happens with the stimulus bill. Um, the $1.9 trillion. $1.9 trillion. Okay. Well, what do you mean see what happens with that? Because it's not all locked down by now? It's the Senate is reviewing it this weekend. They're going to make some changes to it. It's past the House. Oh, okay. So I kind of want to see what the final version looks like. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I would think at some point this year I will. Okay. And I'll just let my my money guy say. And what we'll probably do is, you know, we'll allocate X percent of my liquidity. And every month, no matter what the, the valuation is, we'll just put a certain amount in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For those that haven't experienced being able to manage money at that level, myself included, what does that feel like? For my financial advisor? No, for you. Do you have all this money that's liquid and choosing whether you put it in stock market or not or real estate or not? That sounds fun. Yeah. I mean, but not everyone gets to like make those decisions. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Some I people are just going to work and working, paying bills and working hard. Hoping yeah. it all works out. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that um, it causes me immense stress. Hmm. I didn't, the fear of loss or the fear of missing out or just wanting to maximize the assets at your disposal? What causes the stress? When you have a peer group like I do um, and you look across the hall and you see where they are in the ladder. And like this year, you know, I have a friend in the hedge fund business. He, he, they get paid out their bonuses, uh, you know, end of the year. Right. So this, this dude brought home $6 million. Yeah. That's not everybody. And you, and, and I know it comes across as obnoxious and this is, we're talking about like an infinitesimally small percentage of the world, but, this is still somebody that as a firstborn alpha male, I look to and I say, well, damn, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, he's able to do this. Mm-hmm. Now he's getting crushed right now. Um, but it, it's really hard not to compare and look at what the Joneses are doing. Yeah, I'm sure. Are you a firstborn? Yeah. Okay. It, so is comparison something you deal with? Because I definitely deal with that. All the time. Oh, really? All okay. the time. It's It's hard not to. Yeah. Are you able to manage it or do you feel like it's driving you and eating you? And if you don't keep up, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's probably a healthy aspect to that. And then there's also a very unhealthy aspect to that. How do you feel like you're handling that? It's hard. I think millennial men were never given the vocabulary or the skill set to talk about their emotions. Oh, that's interesting. Period. I wouldn't disagree with that. So I don't, I think we had great, I mean, obviously everyone's different, but I had a, I had a great father figure. He's a wonderful guy. He's a worker, dude's grinder. He's a lawyer. And for him, value creation is based and directly correlated to the amount of time that he spends not with his family. Mm -hmm. That's how his professional services career works. Mm -hmm. It's like being a, a CPA and all these things, right? Yeah. So it's very hard for me to unplug without feeling guilty that I'm not being productive. Okay. Because we, I have seen, and I think it's wrong, but it's very hard to push back against this concept that you're, you're correlating productivity with your self-worth. Mm-hmm. And that means that if you're not being productive, and we could talk about that, definition is that means you are not living up to your abilities and i think that leads to self-hatred mm-hmm. what do you, what you well, let's talk about the definition of productive there what do you have in mind there the reason i got out of law and started what i did is i thought that i had the ability to use my intellect creativity and, and work ethic to create value for an enterprise independent of how much time i necessarily spent on something you thought you were able to do that as an attorney or it struck you that you can't do that as an attorney. You need to get into another field. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And that to me totally stands to reason. Is it working out as you sometimes in, in hindsight? Can you see that <laughs> yeah. if you stayed as an attorney, the answer to being productive is you just have to work your butt off. Right. Right. And, and that's kind of, you know, the mentality in that sector is oftentimes, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. 
<laughs> which is not how I wanted to run my company. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the solution <laughs> is to just work harder. Right. And I think if anything, being an entrepreneur for the last 11 years and seeing the power of how I've been able to leverage technology from a marketing investor relations reporting, everything, fundraising, sales has taught me that you have to work hard, but there are a lot of opportunities to work smarter that are better for you and for your investors. Yeah. yeah. You have kids or no? I've got two boys, eight uh, and five. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So even with the kids, have you seen moving out of the lawyer world into the entrepreneur world is, was good because you, you can add value and not just plug your time into that in such a direct way? It's hard. I mean, pre-COVID, I was taking 150 flights a year. Whoa. So I was on the road, you know, uh, and a lot of those were four baggers. So, you know, you go to Atlanta to get to Columbus to whatever. And I would try to take as many day trips as I could. But, you know, when you're getting on that, there's a 5.30 flight to Atlanta. And then you get back on the 11.10 or 11.30. You do the math on that from like when you're awake. You know, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty damn close to a 24-hour day. Oh, that's so grueling. Um, you seen investors or what were you flying so much for? Looking for deals, seeing investors, raising capital. Okay. And, and I think COVID has made me realize I don't need to do that. Mm. to be effective. And I frankly don't think a lot of investors want to do the tortuous three-hour steak dinner. Okay. <laughs> and this is kind of part of the presentation I do as well is I think a high-value relationship should always be in person on, at some point. Yeah. But I don't think it should take every time. Right. And so what, what a lot of what I talk about with aspiring entrepreneurs is you should respect and empower your investors to make these decisions without forcing them to go to these painful lunches and dinners. Yes. Yeah. Because that was kind of the dance, right? It was like the in email introduction, the phone call, the follow-up, and then a touch every month for six months, and then you figure out what you want to do. Okay. Now I think technology has allowed us to, I mean, LinkedIn, podcasts, webinars, blogs, like... You can figure out what I do and who I am in an hour. Yes. On your own time. Yep. You can yeah. be on a plane. You could be at your desk pretending to work. Yep. You could be on the weekend with a beer and you could figure it out. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested in what I do, you can reach out and we can talk. Yeah. And I'm happy to try to facilitate a, a in-person meeting in a post-COVID world. But it's really binary. It's like, listen, do you like the style of investing? Do you like the return profile? Do you like how I talk? Do you like how I think? Yes. Okay. Well, then it's a function. Do you like the specific deal or not? Yep. And then if you don't, that's cool. And it's really, I think that's what it's allowed these like quicker raises and deeper relationships with the investors is because I'm always around, but they can access me when they want to. Mm -hmm. It's not like, hey, Bob, I'm going to be in Kansas City Tuesday. We're going to have coffee. Yes. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Bob may not want to do that on Tuesday, but he yeah. needs to find out what I'm all about. Yeah. But now he can do that on his own time. Yes. Through these other ways of finding out who you are and how you think and all that, right? Because a lot of those torturous three-hour steak dinners that no one really enjoys is just finding, it's just it's just making sure you're a real person Correct. and you're not out, you know, screwing people and you're doing it the right way and 
there's a real person behind this and, and everything is good, right? That's mostly what that's that's about because they can see the numbers. I think it's a reality check. And, okay. And yeah, I think that's right. And I still think a big investment relationship is still going to at some point take place in person. I think part of what have we been able to do is I'm, I'm using some of that capital I've built up over the last 10 years, right? I mean, all those flights, all those meetings, all those conferences, I'll be able to leverage it. Yes. To some extent. But moving forward, I'm just not sure that's how we're going to do these mm. this business. Mm-hmm. And that's where, to kind of tie back to real estate, I worry about some of these hotels. I worry about the airline industry. I just don't know if it's going to come. I don't think I'm ever going to take over 100 flights a year again. In your lifetime or in your working career? Uh, period. Both would be the... Really? I don't so think so. So at one point you were at 150. Now you don't think you're ever going to get back to even 100. Because th- based on what you learned in the last year, year and a half. I don't think so. Yeah. Because hmm. now when I when I pitch a deal, um, obviously with marketing and my story, I'm pre-selling. So people can really figure out what I'm all about. And then when I send them something, drone footage with a subtitle pitch, a recorded webinar, with frequently asked questions, with pros and cons, with the full deck, with the full model. You can DocuSign if you want to just go ahead and do that. And then if you want to find time on my calendar for a call or a meeting, you can just click the calendar link. We don't have to go back and forth 20 times to figure out that 3 o'clock on Wednesday works for both of us. Yeah, It's just much more efficient. Yeah, And I, I think it's better for the investors and better for me. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, it seems like the, I guess what'll be interesting is the hotels because the airlines, they tend to just get propped up pretty quick, right? Yeah, they got bailed out by the feds again. Um, So I assume they're going to be okay. But the hotels, they're not going to get bailed out as quickly, correct? Yeah, so I had a, I did a webinar with a hotelier. She was, uh, her name's Millie Shaw, super smart. She actually went to UT Law. Um, She said that over 95% of hoteliers... So people who own and operate hotels access PPP funding and it really saved their bacon mm-hmm. and it's coming back. But even she admitted that some of these big conference type setups, you know, the hotels that rely on the sales conference coming in to San Diego once a year, you know, probably the big ones are going to come back, but like the smaller get togethers that you did quarterly, that might just be a zoom now. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I also think Zoom is just not the same as being in person. I agree. You know, like there's some of the um, there's some of these trade shows that um, we haven't launched just yet, but we're getting into the roofing industry in some capacity. And so, of course, I've not been in that before. And so I'm learning everything I can about it. And I want to go to these trade shows, of course. And, you know, of course, they were all canceled last year for COVID. And one of them is going to be in April and they're doing it virtually. I'm not attending it virtually. I'm just going to no. skip it, you know? Because a lot of the action at those conferences takes place between the meetings, right? Yeah. In the hallways, exactly. at the drinks, the dinners, yep. and the breakfast before, and the, the spontaneous coffee meeting that you have with somebody. Yep. I don't disagree. But I'm just not sure, like, am I going to go have lunch with somebody in Richmond just because? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. You mentioned your peer network, and I have two questions on that. One, 
I think that maybe the people that have never experienced anything like that at that level may just assume, you know, wealthy people kind of all like, this is an over-exaggeration, okay, but kind of assholes, you know, and like you're in that peer group as long as you're doing well and productive and and wealthy, I guess. And if that dips, they kick you to the curb. Do you sense that or is there genuine relationships in that level of peer group? They just happen to be very wealthy. Yeah, I think one of the misconceptions about family offices um, is that because they have X amount of dollars in the bank account that they don't have problems. And it's just simply not true. And, you know, it's one of those situations where there's a saying in that space, would you rather have the money and the problems or the problems and not the money? Because everybody has these problems. Yeah. And it's more about family by family and individual by individual, the culture that you build around that money. I am a firm believer that money has energy and you can impart different energies to that money. And if you want to be a dick and you're rich, you're going to be a rich asshole. Yeah. But if you want to be thoughtful and empathetic and think about that money as stewardship and providing a quality of life to your lineage over multiple generations and you do a good job of imparting that culture to your family, it's going to have a different energy around it. Hmm. So are there certain groups that money is a way for them to keep score, but they're just on a treadmill to nowhere. Sure. I don't particularly associate with those folks. I mean, I think that's a tough way to live. Yeah. At the same time, there are certainly groups and people I know that have done very well. They've been very successful and they have really positive energy around that money. Mm -hmm. And and I love spending time with them because They have cool experiences. They're very thoughtful. They're trying to leverage that money to, you know, improve the experiences and the quality of life for their family, which I think is admirable. And they're also doing other things with it to empower other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm not surprised to hear that at all. The second question to that was, I'm just curious with kind of having a front row seat to these wealthy individuals and families what are the common denominators that you're seeing among them that the, I guess, more average person who is not nearly as wealthy maybe is not espousing so much on kind of an everyday level, but but the the wealthy people, what, what are the common denominators you're seeing among these wealthy people that maybe um, less wealthy people could, could learn from? Yeah, it's super interesting. This is a good question. When... When you, when you look at somebody that's had a ton of success, and this is where it gets weird with Wall Street and financial services, and I see this with family offices all the time, they have a liquidity event, which means they sell their company, company goes IPO, they get a bucket of cash. And let's say they were in the timber industry, like multiple generations, timber industry, right? When they have this liquidity, all of a sudden, all these people on Wall Street come out of the woodwork and they say, you need to diversify. And they try to become experts in hedge fund fund of funds mm. or private equity or real estate. And my response is, you should just keep doing timber deals. <laughs> you have expertise. Mm-hmm. 
And what you've seen with super successful people, like Tommy Friss is a great example. He is, and has been, and still is today, massively concentrated in HCA. And I don't think people appreciate the amount of risk that folks that have achieved that level of success took to arrive there. And, right. and what you see from a common fact pattern is massive amounts of concentration into one industry or one product with leverage and the ability to do it long-term. Mm. And, and you kind of hear these stories and the problem is in America, we've got these origination fables where it's rags to riches. And we hear a lot about the rags and we hear a lot about the riches, but never the messy middle. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the messy middle, they almost went bankrupt or things got really scary or they had a really tough patch and they like doubled down or tripled down the business. And that's what allowed them to arrive at where they are. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for people on the outside to just say, oh yeah, but look at him. He's now got this. Mm -hmm. it, it, it came with concentrated risk. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not for everybody. Yeah. And I think you have to be really serious about whether or not you want to participate in that game. Yep. Because it's hard. Yep. So the willingness to take concentrated risk would be a common denominator with among leverage. These people with leverage. And you mentioned that twice. Is that because they just wouldn't have been able to do what they wound up doing if it they just, weren't? You juice your you juice your gains to such an outside Mm -hmm. level with that leverage. Mm -hmm. It can be printed leverage. It can be non-recourse leverage, but it's there. Yeah, I see. Okay. Any other common enemies you're seeing among these extra wealthy people? They all invest with me, for sure. <laughs> well, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I would say concentrated leverage, risk-taking, and just in a singular focus on whatever their widget is. Mm. Mm -hmm. Also something that's over overlooked or undervalued. But back to the example of the timber industry, they sell it, they're out. But how would they keep doing deals in the timber industry? Just for for an example, like just wait till their earn out burns off and start another company. Oh, uh, okay. Or invest in young managers that they really like, do direct deals. I mean, they have this huge amount of expertise. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you want to get in the hedge fund business? Mm, I see. Right? Sure. That makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I just, yep. Oftentimes what I see, the, the fact pattern I see a lot is a family has a liquidity event. Ten years later, they say, man. Okay, so think about it this way. Let me back up. Another misconception about family offices and why people really struggle pitching to them because they're not empathetic because they approach them as like, hey, you're a capital allocator. You should allocate to me because I'm smart and I've got a good deal. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, if you think about it from their perspective, you've got a corpus of assets, like a bucket of capital, right? You need to maintain a quality of life across multiple generations. So that means you need to take into account inflation. So call it 2 or 3% annual. You need to count your spend rate. So whatever it costs to maintain that quality of life, let's put it at 4%, 5%. So you're at 8%. Now you've got an exponentially growing family because people have a tendency to have kids. So your three daughters have three daughters. Yep. That goes, that gets out of hand quickly. You're dealing with nine people, right? Yep. That's a lot of households. So in order to actually do it, you probably need to be doing 
10 to 20% annual returns. Hmm. That's tough. You can't do that in the market consistently. Yeah. So what you see is a family that had an operating company <clears throat> where they had the ability to create alpha for whatever reason, like they had a moat, they had a better mousetrap, whatever. They sell because they get liquidity. They've got this bucket of capital. And then 10 years later, they say, damn, like taking it into inflation and our spend rate and the exponential growth of my family and the taxes I had to pay on that money, I was better off just holding on to the deal. Mm -hmm. But the investment bankers are, did well on that deal, right? Yeah. They got 7%. And then they get to pitch you all these other products afterwards. Okay. But also, part sometimes they're just looking for something different, right? They're looking to sort of get to relax a little bit, or like to not be so, not have to go to the the office every day and run things quite so hands on. Like, isn't that another reason they're, that that they would would sell? Maybe I know very few first generation wealth creators that can do that, like truly dial it back. Sure, yeah. My father in law is seventy four and he still grinds. Mm-hmm. He's still he's at the hospital right now. Okay. Yeah. I just like someone like my dad, he he remarked to me two or three years ago, this is a cancer survivor, 60, he's 70. Your dad? Yeah. Lawyer. He said, Brian, great news. And I'm like, oh, what's up, pops? Like, what happened? I moved my offices from Albany to Troy. And I'm like, that's super exciting. <laughs> Is that the news? And he's like, no, but you can't imagine it. I can get to my office in 12 minutes now. It used to take me 30. Wow. So now I can work more. <laughs> like, dude, you need a hobby, bro. Like, yeah. But he's just not built that way. But to your point, that's some, that's some pretty accurate insight into first-generation wealth creators, right? Because the, the issue becomes when you work that hard and you have that much success... I think the noise, everything else just gets turned down so low that the concept is called the hedonic treadmill. It's why once you build the, your dream house, after three to five years, you get bored with it. Do you want a beach house? Mm-hmm. And then you need a plane because like you just get normalized to it and mm-hmm. socialized. Mm-hmm. And I think for some of these groups or these people, it's just really hard to get the, to move the needle anymore yeah. unless yeah. they're in the game. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you want any bourbon to chase the rest of that cigar down with? You no, good? I'm good. Thank okay. you. Um, inflation. What do you think? What's coming? And what, what I do remember is I remember being at a some sort of a conference in, I mean, it had to be like 08 to 10, somewhere in that time frame. And just multiple speakers were like, inflation is coming in this country like you've never seen. And here we are, 2021, and it, and it never happened. And so I sort of have a less frantic reaction to inflation now, but also understand that it could happen, right? And and we're printing so much money. But now also because our with just the way things are at now with all of this supply, our Fadi Busamra, who is the chief investment officer for Nashville's pension fund was on here a couple of times and, oh, he, nice. and uh, he was mentioning that, 
yeah, inflation could happen. He's not super concerned about it, at least in the near term, because what was he saying? Because supply is so great in this country. We have all this, these companies in manufacturing, we have supply, basically we have supply that's greater than demand. Now, if supply and demand were a little more matched and we're printing all this money, that's going to create ridiculous inflation. Or certainly if supply were to go under demand and we're printing all this money, that's just going to have rampant inflation. Okay. So, but inflation could still happen. I'm just curious. What, what, what do you think is going to happen in the next decade pertaining to inflation? I'm the boy who cried wolf on this because I've been worried about inflation forever and it's never come. Mm. And the Fed is trying to get 2%. That's kind of the sweet spot. I personally think one of the big issues with the Fed is that they serve two masters. They're trying to get inflation right and employment right. And that's they have a dual mandate. And I think it's mm-hmm. really hard to, for a federal government agency to have two mandates, I think is a challenge. They have enough trouble with one mandate. Yep. And if they're going to choose one, they're going to choose employment because that's what keeps them in power. That's right. People who are employed that have money in their pocket don't storm the Capitol. Yep. Like if, you know, and we can get into that. But so to to go back to inflation, I still think it's going to come. I'm concerned about it. I think you need to hedge against it. The issue is when, and you know, it's weird because when you look at the CPI numbers, they're pretty subdued. I don't think we're going to hit anything close to 2% this year, maybe not next year. But when you look at education and healthcare and housing, they're like 3 to 5x what the CPI inflation rate is. So it feels real to me as somebody that's paying for educa- for private tuition mm-hmm. and paying for healthcare. It feels real. I mean, mm-hmm. when I, I, I went to a, a private college, like a top 10, I was super fortunate. My parents paid. But I mean, when I was a freshman in 2000 and I went to Wesleyan, which is a liberal arts D3 school, you know, my tuition was in the mid 30s, 30,000 plus a year, mm-hmm. 35,000 plus a year. My brother, class of 09, when he went, it was in the 50s. And when he left, it was in the 60s. Wow. And when you look at, when you look at private school, in, even in Nashville, it's going up, you know, 3 to 5% annually. So there are pockets of the economy that make it feel real mm-hmm. and that hurt. But then everyday consumer goods doesn't seem to. Mm-hmm. So it's confusing. I need an economist to help me out because it's, it's a concept that I struggle with. And you would think at some point with so much liquidity in the system, it has to come. But guys like Fowdy are much smarter than I am. I'm certainly not anything close to an economist and it, it has not come to date. Obviously real estate would be a good way to hedge against inflation. Yeah. Grab a water there, please. Real estate would be a good way to hedge inflation against inflation, right? What are some other ways? Is it just buying real assets? or Yeah, what? classic inflation hedges would be commodities, um, which have been ripping lately. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking like gold, copper, um, some of the rare earth metals that tech needs to use for their products. Um, a lot of people think they're about to enter into a super cycle and really take off. So that's a nice inflation hedge. What is that? Just like a 10 or 20 year bull run on on commodities. Oh, I see. Okay. So grain, uh, pork bellies, those kind of th- mm-hmm. stuff we consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, obviously real assets, 
Um, and to some extent, you know, some of these digital currencies, if you believe in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that too. So do you think that, yeah, sure, I guess, like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin being probably the most talked about one, uh, or the one that has the most name recognition anyway, that would be a hedge against inflation. It would be, wouldn't it? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a synthetic, but it's a synthetic real asset. Mm-hmm. Art, wine, whiskey, classic cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's some pretty esoteric stuff. But well, and I think the art, wine, whiskey, and, and exotic cars that probably works as an inflation hedge a little bit better when you're wealthy, right? I mean, yeah. for the average American, let's not go buy a bunch of wine. Probably not, right? Yeah, but this democratization <laughs> of access to alternatives is real. And not all of these crowdfunding sites are great, in my opinion. But you can you can get fractional ownership of these things okay. these days, which is really cool. And I think it's going to be something that we see. You know, Robinhood was kind of a microcosm of it. But I think the empowerment of the retail investor in America is real. And Wall Street's losing its grip and its moat around some of these private equity alternative um, assets. And, and it's, I think it's just going to explode. I think as a way to bridge this wealth gap, you're going to see no matter who is in power in DC, you're going to see the, the dilution of the accredited investor status continue. Mm. You're going to see more and more people get access to these type of opportunities and deals. Um, so it's not far fetched. I mean, you, you can go on a thing like yield street and get access to, you know, um, modern art, hmm. Renaissance art. Um, I can't talk about the valuation. I have no idea, but mm-hmm. it's coming. And I think you're yeah. just going to see more and more of it. Oh, fascinating. I don't want to put you in a position where you can't talk about things for, you know, if you have investors listening to this or if you'd want to just totally stay away from politics, but do you care to comment on the Capitol riot? You, you mentioned that a second ago. You know, I don't I don't do politics other than it's a political and business. It's politics is a business reality and it impacts yeah. my business. I try to not interplay with the two of them. Okay. Obviously, I don't like to see anybody get hurt. Yep. And it was sad to see. You know, looking back on it, it's unfortunate that so many people felt that much hatred and anger towards anybody. Mm-hmm. Um. I would hate, I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. That's just, it's frustrating because clearly these people don't think they're being heard. Mm-hmm. And the only way that they felt they could be heard was by acts of violence. Um, so I'll probably leave my commentary there. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm apolitical when it comes to my business. Yeah. Um, but it's, it certainly was a sad day, I think, for everybody. Totally agree. Yeah, and I think you're being pretty <clears throat> pretty generous. I think um, we don't need to get into it, but I think there's more involved there. I think these people had sort of this righteous cause they were fighting for, and they had their marching orders, you know, wherever that was from, and they had these ideals and ideologies that they were chasing, and phew, just got carried away, man. And <laughs> it's crazy. You know, I'll go back. I'm a my undergraduate degree is in liberal arts classic civilizations, that kind of thing. And I will say, I think a narrative that doesn't get talked much 
and I'm not forgiving any actions. But something that we don't talk much about as a country any longer is the fact that, you know, we've been at war for 20 years and we have a segment of the population who, you know, now that it's a purely volunteer military, we have a large segment of the population that is one of the only options they have towards getting, you know, a, a, a profession. And we, they've been on multiple combat tours that nobody really pays attention to any longer. Mm-hmm. We forget that we've been in Afghanistan since I was in college. Yeah. And that's a long time. Yep. You've got folks who have done five plus tours of duty. And when they come back, they don't have, they don't have employable skill sets mm-hmm. and they get there. They go back home to Idaho where they don't have a lot to do and they have a lot of time on their hands. And we haven't done a good job of, of reorienting them towards being productive members of our society. Mm-hmm. And we, for the most part, have ostracized them. And there's a lot of anger and fear in those populations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you learn from history is when a ruling elite class uses... Um, a small minority of the population to do their dirty work. Like when the Romans start outsourcing their military away from citizens towards some of these outer republics that they subsumed, it didn't end well. Mm. So I, I just wish that we would think through the, the blood and gold that we're spending on these campaigns mm-hmm. and what the end game is because there's a lot of people doing our dirty work for us. Yeah. It doesn't even make the front page anymore. It's true. It's true. Like what is, what is Biden's platform on this? Yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Like what are the hundred thousand troops in Iraq doing right now? I don't know. Yeah. What is the end game? In Afghanistan, is it to create a democratic nation state that's going to be independent? Is it we're there to prevent them from collapsing? Mm-hmm. What does success look like? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Do you think that anyone has an idea? No. Or is it has to do with money and we're just going to follow that? I think the scary thing is is these are quagmires that extraction means collapse and nobody wants to have that on their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also one of the the things about, you know, with the way we have leaders, at least the opportunity to cycle in and out every four years is there's good and bad. And the bad is, well, let's just, let's just not have that on our hands and let's just leave that for the next administration. Right. I mean, there's a reality to that. I mean, if you look at, and this is probably ex- extreme, but if you look at what Charles Rangel, who is, you know, a very liberal black uh, Democrat from New York city, long serving. His response was, I will vote for these campaigns. If everybody in Congress has their children serve. Yeah. Yeah. I think that changes the math. Yeah. That changes the math for sure. That's that's a no go at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, no way. I can't imagine. No and way. and and I'm not saying that people don't serve that 
there's certainly there are families that are, you know, representing us that have people that serve, but I mean, it's such a small percentage of the population now, mm-hmm. but it's super concentrated within that small percentage of the population. If you go to a certain subset of, of the U S population, they all know people that served. Whereas yeah. in my network and social strata, I certainly know a few and I respect the hell out of them. My brother-in-law is one, but I mean, I could probably put him on maybe one, maybe two hands tops. Yeah. I'm in the same position, but for different reasons, I grew up Mennonite and Mennonite people don't serve in the military. So, um, I know very few people that have served. I know, you know, a number, but, and respect them a ton, but, um, I don't have a bunch of close family. And again, I'm not forgiving all the action that took place by any means, but I just wish we would have a conversation about what we're doing here. That is a fascinating angle because that's not something that I was thinking in terms of a core group or a majority or that these people that have served and are having a hard time fitting back into society is sort of an at-risk demographic, if you will, for these types of things. And but you've I got, can see it. And you've got a, a country where we have more guns than people. So these are well-trained, angry, upset, militarized, weaponized people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I played lacrosse with um, a guy whose brother was the captain of the hockey team at West Point. He was a ranger. And he was KIA in Afghanistan. They named a bridge after him in the North Shore of Massachusetts. Mm. Awesome family. Terrific guy. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, I mean, like, what's the legacy? Yeah. Like, what what does Biden tell his mom? Yeah. Like, what are we doing there? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right. What are the preconditions that would allow us to totally vacate that country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are big questions. And also some of the motives going away, right? Because back in the day, we needed to go make sure we had this oil supply under our fist. But the need for that is going now away. Now we're a net exporter. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully some of that need, if you will, if it ever truly existed, I don't know. But hopefully some of that's going away to be fighting these wars. I think Bezos talking about Amazon. Bezos talking about going out and getting minerals from other uh, comets. Live on the moon. And, plant, and plants and bringing them back. It's going to be great. But, uh, well, the, so that's one That's one kind of angle where we go live on other planets like Mars. Obviously, you have Musk talking about that. But, but the uh, Bezos thing is, I think, a more interesting and viable idea, which is, okay, so if we get into, like, these electric cars, a lot of people don't know, it actually takes a lot of mining to make these batteries. And so we need to make sure we can get that supply. And some of those countries aren't the most stable. But if we can get some of these minerals that we need for some of these things from other planets or comets, that would be, that's pretty interesting. Bring it back here. Stay, let's stay living here, but bring what we need back here to Earth. I think that's a more viable option, at least in the near term, than going and living on other planets. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure... You know, um, it's interesting. I can't remember his name, but I was listening to a podcast with this astrophysicist and it was kind of like migrating to the moon or Mars is probably possible, but it didn't solve the problem. Yeah. Like we need to crack the code of go to go beyond the speed of light to find another viable place. Or we could just 
fix what we have here. Yes. But no one seems really, and I, including me, I'd have this argument with my with my wife often, talking about these, you know, um, climate change and the environment. And it's really hard because I don't want to give up my quality of life. Mm-hmm. I love my air conditioning. I love my cheap gas. I love to be able to fly to go have lunch with a guy and come back mm-hmm. the same day. Yep. I don't want to give up any of that. Yep. And it, it, it's, it, it's a hard decision to make, right? Yeah. 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 I could see that. Let's do touch on the office. I don't want to keep you much longer. It's oh, almost five o'clock, but um, future of office space. So last, uh, last reading of one of your tweets, Andy, Haldane, chief economist at the Bank of England, says exposure to new and different experiences, sounds, smells, environments, ideas, people is a key source of creative spark. Homeworking can starve us of many of these creative raw ingredients. From what I've gathered from looking you up a little bit is that you're a proponent of working in offices or having some amount of office work. Yeah, let's be upfront with the the fact that you also buy office buildings uh, and rent them out, I, right? So I'm a landlord of two million square feet of office. So you have that, I am okay? Terribly biased. Sure. Okay. Well, let's use your term and even say terribly biased, but also, um, you know, you understand, you see why they're having these offices to begin with. So you have some level of understanding here that maybe the common person does not. I have some opinions on this front. You know, I've been hearing for the last year <clears throat> about all this offices being vacated and staying vacated and everything. Um, I'm not so sure because I'm a big environment guy, big environment guy. Like I need to be in a certain place to do certain things and I can't be at home and do certain things. It just, it doesn't work. Now I also have five kids, but even if half of them are out running around, it's just, you need, in my opinion, you need certain environments to do certain things. So I don't, I've never really thought that office space is going away for good. And then Amazon, I think is one of them too. That's saying, yeah, we're bringing people back sooner than later. We don't think the uh, the future of office work is totally virtual. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? So pre-COVID, 4% of the workforce worked remotely. Different than work from home. Mm-hmm. Clearly in a post-COVID world, more of us are going to work remotely than 4%. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think what you saw in the last 12 months, because we're just about at a year now of this experiment, that initial spike in productivity that people experience as employers, when you heard all the headlines of, this is great, we're never going to go back to the office, Twitter shutting down their offices, that novelty and the fear of getting fired increased a spike there. But then in the summer, and we experience, I have 15 employees, we experienced this starting around Memorial Day through the summer. People started feeling isolated, depressed, Creativity was down, zero collaboration. Any new project launch or onboarding a new employee was just not possible. And what we realized is we will change the way we interact with office, but we are social animals. And there may be positions where if you're a coder, you can just chill in your closet and grind it of course. all day. Yep. I think those people should live in Boise. Yep. That's great. They're going to get paid less, yep. which they don't realize. Bezos is not stupid. He's going to pay them less than when they live in San Francisco, yep. but they can do it. Yep. But if you're in any kind of team, sales, marketing, biz dev, executive functionality where you need to make hard decisions, that spontaneity 
it's just not possible over Zoom, in my opinion. I mean, look at the conversation we're having in person if versus we were doing this on Zoom. It's not the spark is not there, right? It's totally not. I totally agree. That's so, why we only do this podcast in person. I think what you'll see is, you know, pre-COVID, there was this trend from the Great Recession up until last year where densification was the name of the game. WeWork and some of these other groups took space down to about 75 square feet per user. And so you had hot desking, hoteling, bullpens, cramming. Regardless of where we are at the vaccine, I think you'll see a return to more traditional office layouts, which is about 350 square feet per user. Mm. And you'll start to see offices be more kind of like this room, right? Bigger open spaces where teams can meet, bounce ideas off each other, come, come up with ideas. Maybe you will work from home Monday and Friday, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're going to be in the office doing that type of work. Yep. And I don't really see that changing. Um, and you've seen more and more. And if you look at the economy today, it's tech driven, right? And what Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and Apple did during the downturn they gobbled up as much cheap office space as they could. I mean, they're buying millions of square feet. New York, Austin, Dallas. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Facebook took down 2 million square feet in New York of office. So they clearly think that that office is going to have a, a function in their wow. world, right? And so I could see a hub and a spoke model where maybe everybody doesn't have to live in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have multiple teams distributed across various markets, mm-hmm. but working from home hundred percent of the time, first off for people like me, it's probably doable because I have my own office and I've got people that take care of my kids and like, mm-hmm. I can do it. But for a lot of folks that have roommates, they live in a, in a rental with their family, working at the kitchen desk is not feasible long-term. Yeah. So I see a, a I think people are going to really want, if you look at Nashville, in my office building in Belmede, we're it's a hundred percent normal. Like it's back to normal. Oh, is it? Okay. Unless you work for a large publicly traded corporation which has a COVID regulation in place mm. that's saying, no, 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 you can't do that. But mm-hmm. if you're working for a smaller, medium-sized business, you're back in the office working. Yeah. Because you need to be. You you, yep. you can't be productive elsewhere. Yep. So that's my kind of two cents on that whole space. I agree. I think one of the, there's two, two things that people forgot largely in that discussion last year, not everyone, but I think it didn't rise to the level of consciousness. Like it should have been a lot of the conversations. One is there's a lot of people that can't work from home. If you're building a car, you don't get to do that in your living room. You got to be in the stinking shop. And, uh, and two is Facebook and Amazon and Google and all these places, they didn't start virtual. You know, <laughs> you have people grinding it out around the clock in person, collaborating with this creative spark. And you weren't you weren't doing that at your home, calling people through Zoom and building these these companies. And, and, and I think you've got to be careful what you wish for, because if you really want to do a work from home deal, you're going to get paid a lot less. You're going to miss out on climbing that ladder corporately because you're just not around. And you're going to have to give up a lot of your privacy rights because Mm. your employer is going to want to check in on you and make sure that you're doing what you say you're going to be doing all the time. Yeah. And that's a deal that you probably don't want to make. Yeah. You need some delineation between your private and professional life. I mean, we've all blown apart our privacy concepts over the last 20 years, which that's a different conversation, but I think this is a bridge too far. Yeah. And as an employee, 
I don't think you want to make the deal with the devil like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I mean, call me old fashioned, but I like driving to an office and doing work and driving home. And I understand when you drive home, you do work at home in the evenings or Saturdays or whatever. Um, but I think it's hard to beat having a place that you go to with the team you can collaborate with and you do your thing and you go home. Uh, but I'm, but also I understand a lot more people are going to work remotely going forward, but that's fine. I mean, there are certain positions, like you said, coders or, you know, straight commission salesperson who's on the phone every day. That doesn't matter if they're going into office to call people around the world or they're doing that at a remotely location, you know? So there's some, some things that work better that way. I just, I just didn't see all the buzz that I was hearing last year about all oh, going remote and everything and staying remote. And what are we going to do with these office buildings? And they're never coming back. I just never really truly bought into that. Yeah. And actually this morning I was looking at some um, articles and some reporting year over year. Um, so, you know, obviously pre COVID versus in a post COVID space, sales volume of office investment properties is higher now than it was pre COVID. In London and New York. Wow. That surprises me. And it also surprises me that these tech companies are buying office space. I, I just wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, I don't think, I don't know if they, how much they publicized it, but yeah. um, they clearly think that it's going to have a, a need. And the Microsoft CEO, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's been very vocal about getting people back into the office. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's a leading indicator to me because tech is the largest employer in America now. Yeah. Yep. And that drives the whole economy. Yep. Last question. It seems to me that you would have some experience with both with what you do with these projects, but also seeing the people you're around and so forth, just the um, facing challenge and adversity and even failure. How do you think about challenge, adversity, and failure? If you have a project you're working on, all of a sudden this changes and you need to you need to adjust things or, you know, create a plan B because plan A is just not going to work anymore, you know, or or dealing with a, a, a project that just isn't going to work. Like, how do you or even with seeing the people that you've seen, you mentioned kind of working through that messy middle. I'm just kind of curious with both your experience and the people that you are around. How do you think about challenge, adversity and even failure? I think the hero culture within financial services is problematic. And I really would encourage people to be more open to being vulnerable and not talking about how great they are and discussing more about the mistakes they've made mm -hmm. because it's much more helpful to other people to not step in that same pothole twice than it is to hear about some white 40 year old guy talk about how awesome he is at doing deals. Mm -hmm. So I went through a very difficult stage in that messy middle of my career where, you know, I'd grown too fast. I didn't have the ability to scale. I did not put the time or the energy into building the infrastructure to allow us to scale. And it was a really challenging period. But it's made me a much better manager today. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally shifted the way I think about the business. So I think everyone should read some more Brene Brown mm -hmm. and get comfortable with talking about your failure, being mm -hmm. open to that criticism and being vulnerable because it will help you grow quicker. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and, and I do think that with being able to sort of filter your message with now, you know, like all the social media and everything, you can sort of filter out the stuff you don't want and lead with the stuff you do, and that can 
it can entirely change someone's perception of you and your story and journey and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the evil of social media can wait for another day, but yeah, I, I promise you whatever artifice you're throwing up there or a costume that you put on in the morning, it's not the reality for most people. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. Anything else you want to leave with our listeners before we wrap this up? I apologize to Poyle for wanting to fire him, but <laughs> it is what it is, man. Like, Dude, it's dumpster uh, fire time. <laughs> I think you can handle Trade it. Trade everyone, fire everybody. Go Preds. And now they're going to go on a win streak. I look like a total schmuck. <laughs> it's okay. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> That'd, be That'd, okay. be good. That'd be good with me. Brian Adams, thanks so much for being on the podcast, yeah, man. Yeah, man, that was Appreciate a ton of fun. Thank you for hosting you. me. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you again.